All right. We are here with Jean Hébert, a professor of neuroscience and genetics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He is the author of the book, Replacing Aging, and is one of the world's leading researchers on brain cell and tissue replacement. Jean, welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Do you have any financial disclosures? Um, I'm starting a couple of companies, uh, very, very early stage. One of them I won't be talking about related material at all. And the other one, we actually haven't closed the deal yet. So I guess, technically speaking, I don't yet, but um, just want to put that out there. Excellent. So let's start with a deceptively simple question. What exactly is aging? Yeah, no, I think it's a very good question, especially these days with the amount of focus and attention that the longevity field is getting, research field is getting. Because if you ask 10 different longevity researchers what aging is, you'll get 10 different answers, right? Um, But I think we know what aging is. I think we've known what aging is for decades. biochemically speaking, and and I think that's the level that matters. Um, Aging is a deterioration of who we are at that level, at the the molecular level. So we're made up of proteins, carbohydrates, DNA, lipids. And if you look at those biochemically over time, they're all accumulating, you know, stochastic forms of... um, damage, usually covalent, uh, but not always, uh, but very complex variety of forms of damage. And, you know, eventually we just can't deal with that and, and we, our bodies deteriorate and, and performance drops and, um, you know, we age and we, that's it, we, we approach, inevitably approach uh, a final demise. And how did your view differ from that of most of your colleagues? So I think um, most of my colleagues uh, don't pay enough attention to this damage. I mean, some do, particularly DNA damage. Um, But a lot of the damage that occurs in our bodies occurs outside of cells. Cells are metabolically active. They have machinery for repair. So... Even though damage occurs in cells, it often gets repaired. And a lot of the focus of my colleagues is on um, increasing some of those repair processes. Um, But they're ignoring the outside of the cell, uh, which is much more inert, but also accumulates damage, um, maybe even more so than inside cells. But there is no machinery for repairing it. And this damage accumulates, you know, over time, um, from when we're very young, and this has been well documented, you know, a long time ago. Um, and if we ignore that damage, we're not going to get very far in terms of extending healthy lifespan because uh, if we put young cells in those old extracellular environments, they behave like old cells. So this has been done repeatedly for different parts of the body. So all this focus that my colleagues have on cell-centric ways of dealing with aging 
are going to have a limited impact on really extending lifespan. They may increase performance transiently because they'll boost some function. Um, they may help treat certain age-related diseases. But aging per se is not addressed by, or not sufficiently addressed by, by these approaches. So when it comes to this idea that life, human life can be radically extended in the near future, there, there might even be people alive today who will live to be 130, 140. Um, you don't see that happening without addressing these less tractable issues like extracellular matrix damage. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, that's right. Um, you know, somebody might make it to 130, you know, but they'll be, they'll look like they're 130 and they'll feel like they're 130, right? Um, so if you don't find a way of, of reversing aging and the process is still going on, um, yeah, you're going to have to, uh, come up with, a different approach than small molecules or, or, or biologics targeting each of these different forms of, of age-related damage, uh, which, again, we, we don't really know how, even if we could invent the machinery to address some of these forms of damage, how we would implement it in people without disrupting you know, the normal life-sustaining processes of our, of our cells and metabolism. Um, so, you know, uh, I, yeah, I don't see that without addressing the, this, uh, these extracellular forms of damage, but also DNA damage, right? DNA damage accumulates. No one really has a way of, you know, repairing that, uh, reversing the mutations to what they were or repairing chromosomal breaks, right? So some of this is loss of information. Um, what machinery are we going to invent to fix that? Um, and that accumulates over time. Um, so you have, it's this constellation of forms of damage that are accumulating. Um, and focusing on even a handful of them is probably going to have a limited impact. Um, maybe you'll get someone to 130, uh, you know, but um, I think there's a much easier way of thinking of this. And that's just replacing tissues, in which case you, you know, you, you uh, get rid of all the forms of damage at once. So basically you're proposing sort of a Theseus's ship type approach where, you know, your, your heart goes bad and you get a new heart, which already happens, or your kidneys go bad and you get new kidneys. Your, your arm fails in some way and you get a prosthesis arm and, and so on and so on. And, and um, I guess, you know, can you kind of lay out you know, what, what you see as ultimately happening with tissue replacement throughout the, the whole body and then, you know, up into the brain, which is where I think most of your time gets spent thinking. Yeah, we're, we're focused on the brain, but I'll talk about the body a little bit because there's a lot of exciting work going on there. There's, you can imagine different approaches for the body. Um, okay, let's go really wild first and then we can go more conservative afterwards. Um, really wild would be, you know, that what, what the group, um, Sestan's group at Yale is working on, Brain X, 
where you know you can basically keep a brain alive if you develop this technology far enough without any biological body. So a completely synthetic body. Of course, you would need some brain-machine interface to be able to interact with your environment, but people are working on that as well. So that's that's kind of the wildest thing. Is like you could replace your body, right, um, with non-biological components, if in theory, and that you would still be yourself, assuming we all agree that we are essentially our brains. Um, so that that would be one approach. But another approach um, is replacing, doing whole body replacements. Um, which, you know, people are working on as well. Um, people are uh, growing bodies uh, ex utero or, or fetuses ex utero. I wouldn't call them bodies yet. Um, but again, there's efforts in that direction to, to, and those could be used for replacement organs, which are in great demand. You know, people are dying all the time because there's no organs, but they could also be used for more wholesale replacement, you know, at, at some point if you want to. Uh, so those are the more wild things that you can think of. Um, but then the field of regenerative medicine as a whole, as a whole, is is developing uh, lab-grown organs um, and body parts that essentially could, if applied in a more wholesale fashion, could also uh, rejuvenate your body to a, or return your body to a younger state because none of those have all the age-related uh, damage that, you know, a 50, 60, 70, 80, 90-year-old have. Um, so, so there's, you know, um, a lot of exciting things going on for body replacement. You mentioned also, like, uh, uh, prosthetic arms and, and legs. Those are, you know, I think the best prosthetic legs right now are... are pretty equal to natural legs and, and will soon outperform them. So it's like, why are you going to want a natural leg when you can have one of these super, you know, prosthetics? Um, so, you know, that's kind of a, <laughs> I think we're part of where we're going for uh, replacements of body parts. Um, even organs, they're, you know, they're developing semi-synthetic kidneys, um, so, you know, a lot of exciting things going on in regenerative medicine. But, yeah, the brain. We cannot replace the brain as a whole, and that's where the ship of Theseus analogy is, is uh, very relevant. Um, because I, I think we can replace it progressively over time without uh, a loss of function or self-identity. And, you know, I'm happy to talk more about why I think that's the case. Um, so one thing that you talk about is in a brain that has a slowly growing glioma in a particular region, let's say it controls language. If it's slow enough growing over time, the functionality for that region will actually move elsewhere. So you can have this giant tumor inside your head, but be speaking totally fine, even though it's in the region that controls language. How, how does that happen? And what do we know about the process? 
Yeah, we don't know exactly how that happens. This is plasticity. Again, it's a it's a very well established principle in, in neuroscience, uh, especially for the neocortex, the part of our brain that we use for uh, our highest cognitive functions, the conscious part of our brain. Um, plasticity is something that's been demonstrated for pretty much every functional modality that's been looked at. Um, so vision, hearing, um, you know, language. Um, and, and if you give it time, um, the, the neocortex that encodes that uh, can be re-encoded by something else. And again, we don't know how this happens, but it makes total sense that this is the way the brain works. We evolved to have plastic brains. That's what allows us to learn new things. If our environment changes, we can adapt. You know, we, uh, our, our brain allows us to do that. So we're not hardwired. We're super plastic. Um, but this level of plasticity is still uh, very impressive. The example you give of language, which is a function that is very dear to us, and it's fairly complex. Um, the fact that it can move from, you know, the eloquent center of the brain of the neocortex over the course of a few years to a completely different location of the neocortex without the person noticing or the, anybody close to them noticing that there's any change in their ability to speak is pretty amazing. Um, and, and so this is one of the principles on which I think progressive replacement is possible in theory. So let's talk more about some of the details of actually replacing brain tissue. Where does the original brain tissue come from? How do we move it to the new location? And what happens at that point? I think to start off that discussion, it's important to point out that the brain tissue we're talking about is going to be a very immature brain tissue. The equivalent of, you know, a mid-gestation human fetal neocortex. The reason for that is, you know, adult tissue, if you were to try to graft it into adult brain tissue and into another adult, um, basically nothing would happen. It, it might get revascularized, so you might have a bit of somebody in your brain, but the connections wouldn't form in any functional way. Um, because, you know, adult tissue is, is beyond the point where it can wire up again uh, normally. Uh, fetal tissue, on the other hand, is what gave rise to the brains we have in our skulls now. Like, no one made those brains. It developed on its own following an innate program of development. And, and what's really exciting, and it's sort of the second reason why we think progressive brain tissue replacement uh, can work, is that when we put this fetal tissue or cells that resemble, to some extent, this fetal tissue in adult brains, they seem to ignore the fact that they're in an adult brain and continue their innate uh development program uh, to become mature functional um, cells and tissue. Uh, and so these, these cells or tissue that are grafted in the adult brain uh, will send long projections to normal targets in the brain and will receive in synaptic input. Um, and in many ways, you know, 
they'll do remarkably well, uh, which, you know, was quite surprising when, when we first realized this. And I say we as a field because we were not the first lab to show this, although we've confirmed it ourselves. Um, so that's very exciting, too. Uh, but where do we get this tissue, right? Um, human fetal tissue uh, can be used for research. It is used for research. Um, it has been used therapeutically uh, for Parkinson's, you know, in the late 80s, I think, was the first uh, experiments using human fetal tissue to treat Parkinson's. Um, so, you know, it can, in principle, be a source, but it's really not practical. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a... It's an inconsistent source. You know, there, there are maybe ethical issues around using it as well. Uh, so it's not, it's really not uh, what we want to use other than, you know, opportunistically for research um, and sort of uh, the gold standard for what we're uh, striving for. So this tissue would come then from stem cells. And, um, and you know, the, the stem cell of choice uh, would be um, induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and, and so they could be patient-derived or they could be somebody else's uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, ideally, you would want them to be patient-derived, though, to avoid uh, the need for suppressing the immune system. But from those stem cells, you know, you're still far away from fetal brain tissue. Uh, to get from those stem cells to what looks like fetal brain tissue, you have to generate the different cell types, precursor cell types that are found in the fetal neocortex. You have to get the ratios of those cell types to each other correct. You have to get the relative maturity states of those cells uh, to, to match that of the normal fetus. And they also come in a particular cytoarchitecture uh, that's layered. Um, and they have a niche that, you know, we would have to um, recapitulate. But these, all, these are all technical details. You know, we, we've identified all the cell types that are there. Um, we can generate um, probably all of them at this point. There are protocols for generating each of the cell types that make up a fetal neocortex from induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, and so it's just really a matter of... Um, getting people working on this and, and uh, you know, sort of reverse engineering uh, this fetal tissue with its cellular and uh, extracellular niche components um, to get it to work. Yeah. So you're basically taking this tissue and you're putting it into mice, right? Yeah. Mice are, you know, the it, mice are being used as sort of a platform to keep the tissue alive. So what we've shown that's a little more novel than, than what others have shown is that we can get the tissue to be vascularized, which means it can survive and thrive. Um, and we can't do that ex vivo or in culture. So, you know, uh, the only way we can get circulation, blood circulation in our prototype graft tissues is by having them uh, in a mouse. Even though it's human tissue, the mice are immune compromised and so they don't reject the tissue. And do those implanted tissues, the young tissue, change the function of the older tissue around it in any way? So far, it doesn't look like it. Um, <laughs> to me, that's not surprising. But 
you know, a lot of people think that you can rejuvenate, uh, you know, your body or, or parts of your body with, for example, young blood or, or, you know, just being closer to young tissue. I think the effects are work mostly in the other direction. Um, we do have a collaboration with uh, a group at, at Harvard, uh, Vadim Radishev, and uh, where we're putting in uh, our tissue, a very rudimentary prototype uh, of neocortical tissue in very old mice and seeing whether the epigenetics, you know, so people in the longevity field have heard of these epigenetic clocks that are very accurate in determining your biological age. Um, but what's not clear is whether, um, you know, reversing those clocks actually means you've reversed aging. I don't think so. I don't think that's true at all. Um, but so we put these our prototype tissues in these very old mice and just look at the epigenome of the neighboring tissue to see if it looks younger. It, it doesn't so far. It's preliminary, so I'll, I'll throw that in there. Uh, we're still trying. Um, and, and the younger tissue, I mean, the tissue we put in, in some cases, uh, looks as young as fetal tissue, remains as young as fetal tissue, even after several months, uh, or, you know, uh, a three-month-old fetal tissue. Um, and, and, but again, that's, that's uh, it's very preliminary. You know, we, we're still working on this, but that's our expectation is it won't have much of an impact on the surrounding tissue, but luckily the surrounding tissue, I don't think will have much of an impact on prematurely or accelerating aging in the, in the tissue we put in as well. And, and to some extent that's been shown in these human cases of Parkinson uh, cell transplant. So, so transplantation of dopaminergic, um, neurons um, in post-mortem tissue, you know, uh, 12 to 24 years after transplantation, um, you, you can see that it takes like more than 15 years for the cells that you put in to start adopting old features of the surrounding environment. And those are naked cells. So we're putting in tissue, so it's much more insulated. Uh, so it should do better. Could you talk a little bit about those dopaminergic transplant experiments? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's groups in Sweden who started this uh, very, like a long time ago. Um, again, the first trials were with uh, fetal, midbrain fetal tissue, dissociated cells from fetal uh, human midbrain and um, transplanted into um, the, the putamen of the brain, which is part of the brain um, uh, that's in the ventral areas that, that uh, involved in movement control. Um, and, and the results were uh, mixed. So some patients were essentially cured that they had, they could go off their medicine and and um, you know they had restored uh, normal movement. Others were made worse, uh, so they developed more severe dyskinesia or you know movement disorders, um, and so they stopped using that as an approach. 
but it was a fairly imprecise science at the time where they took this midbrain tissue and did not, you know, purify dopaminergic precursors. So in there were other cell types, serotonergic precursors. And, and so, um, and the delivery as well as I understand was somewhat variable to the, to the area of the brain, um, which will make a big difference as well. And so, um, you know, th those were, that, that approach was put on hold for a while, but now there are several clinical trials ongoing for um, Parkinson's using dopaminergic neurons that, again, are either um, derived from human embryonic stem cells or human-induced pluripotent stem cells. So there's a group here in New York, um, you know, uh, led by Loren Studer at Sloan Kettering, who... Um, uh, has a company, Blue Rock, and they put their cells into patients uh, just this year. Um, and and uh, fingers crossed that they'll get positive results from that. Just to clarify, so those experiments in Sweden, they took tissue from embryonic stem cells and transplanted them into, into humans? Uh, or where were the cells actually from, the midbrain dopaminergic neurons that they were transplanting? They were from human fetuses. So they, they dissected uh, the midbrain portion of human fetuses, where they thought dopaminergic neurons should be and where they normally are, um, and, and dissociated those cells and transplanted them into the brains of Parkinson's patients. Wow. And uh, how, how long ago was this done? This was in the late 80s, yeah. And, and because some patients did really well, there was at least a proof of concept that this could work, right? So this generated a lot of interest. And so there's, a, there's been a lot of groups uh, working on this, and there's been uh, quite a few subsequent clinical trials as well. You've mentioned a couple different pra potential practical applications. There was the Parkinson's, you mentioned Alzheimer's, you've also mentioned using stroke as a model. Which of these or, or others do you think would be the most likely first application of brain of neocortex tissue regeneration? And why do you think that's the, uh, the most likely? Yeah, we're, we're thinking uh, stroke will be our first indication. Um, and, and, you know, strokes can happen in any part of the brain, but they do happen fairly often in the neocortex. And that's the tissue we're um, elaborating strategies to replace. You know, we're, that's the tissue we're, we're engineering. Um, so it would have to be something that occurs in the neocortex. Trauma would be another, you know, localized trauma would be another one. Um, but it would be something local, like stroke or trauma, um, rather than trying to, you know, address broader uh degenerative conditions like aging uh, or, or Alzheimer's. Uh, just as a proof of concept that in humans, uh, that this tissue can then, um, you know, uh, allow a person with stroke, for example, that affects their ability to move parts of the body or their, their ability to speak to more easily regain that, um, that ability because they now have a tissue that resembles you know, like a early newborn tissue or even earlier than that, 
um, that, that that is you know completely open and waiting for information to encode. Um, so that should make it um, easier for them to relearn. This is a little different than the strategy we would use for a broader degenerative condition like aging or Alzheimer's. Uh, because in that case, it's a very progressive, slow process. And, and you want to, if you're going to introduce or replace tissue progressively over time, you want to do it in such a way that you do not lose any of the encoded functions that exist there already. In stroke or, you know, like a penetrating trauma, it's gone. There's no time for plasticity, right? The, the tissue just dies. Uh, so whatever was there before is gone. Um, and, and in something like Alzheimer's or aging, that's not what you want. You want to preserve everything that's there and allow it, give it time to move to a new substrate. So just to get into a little bit more of how you envision this happening. So there's a patient that has a stroke. They're rushed to the emergency room. Maybe there is uh, you know, an attempt to open up blood flow with some TPA or some other clot-busting method. Maybe they uh, go in and perform an, an endarterectomy, whatever the case may be. Then how exactly are the cell types that are to be implanted going to be uh, obtained? Is it going to be something like, okay, it has to be obtained from the specific individual who had a stroke? What cells do you envision taking? What's going to need to happen to those cells? And then how do you envision actually surgically putting them into the location where the stroke was? I'm sort of trying to understand like what needs to happen to make this effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've consulted a little bit with uh, surgeons and, and, and you know, uh, doctors that focus on stroke. Um, and it seems like initially the, the applications would be to wait, you know, a, a certain amount of a few months, like not, you know, between two and, and, and four months maybe, where you know that there isn't going to be recovery without some new intervention, right? Uh, because this is a fairly novel approach, getting FDA approval for doing something when we don't know yet if that patient, how well they're going to do without it, uh, might um, entail too much of a risk. So we're going to wait till sort of the chronic phase uh, where the patient is unlikely to show any more recovery than they, they have up until that point. Um, although there may be an exception to that, and you, you guys being MDs may know this. So strokes to the primary visual cortex, um, you don't have to wait. You know that person is not gonna regain sight. Um, there's very little plasticity. That's like the only part of the cortex where there seems to be very little plasticity, uh, probably because the signaling pathways are very linear there. Um, and, and if you break that, that linear chain of information, you know, that's it, uh, you don't recover. Um, for other parts of the cortex, like the somatosensory cortex, you know, which is a common area for strokes where you lose movement, um, there there's more plasticity. So for that, we'd have to wait. For, for damaged or, or stroked the visual cortex, that's still a possibility we're considering 
Uh, again, we're still very early stage, far away from that, so we have a lot of time to think about this. Uh, but it's still uh, possible that for those patients, we could do sort of a more immediate intervention. But barring that, you know, we would wait to see whether how well they recover without uh, this intervention. Uh, and then uh, uh, surgically, uh, the cells, oh, you mentioned the cells. So the cells uh, at first would not come from uh, the patient. Uh, again, because, you know, you'd have to have this process pretty standardized to get FDA approval. And right now, you know, to get cells approved for use in humans, regardless of what disease you're addressing, there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, quality control and safety measures that you have to go through. Uh, and they take a lot of time. And, and so, you know, it's just not feasible to do this initially for each patient. Um, so we would use iPS cells, but not derived from that patient. Um, and, and so these iPS cells would be pre-prepared, right? We wouldn't, uh, because they were previously obtained, um, they would have been grown, differentiated into the different cell types. Again, we have to, when we rebuild the tissue at the site of the lesion, which is how we do it, we rebuild the tissue in vivo. We don't make like these cultured brain-like things that we graft. Uh, we actually uh, use the cells, mix it with um, scaffold, and then deposit it in the site of the lesion. So that's how we do it in mice. Uh, that's how we would do it in humans. Uh, with the added complexity of we haven't yet really recreated the uh, layered structure of a fetal cortex. Um, but that's something we'd have to do as well. And there, there's probably, you know, three or four layers of cells that we, we would uh, envision needing to, uh, to then allow that to develop normally. And, and so basically, ideally, we'd have tubes A, B, C, and D, um, and, and the surgeons would be trained on, you know, how much, how to determine how much A, B, C, D, depending on the, on the, the, the lesion at that site, uh, to reform the layered structure um, and then, you know, allow, allow developmental biology to do its magic and let that fetal tissue do what it was, was engineered to do as opposed to born to do. So to return to our analogy from earlier, Theseus's ship. I think one of the striking differences between that slow-growing glioma, which has time to migrate function to other parts of the brain, and the stroke model is that in a stroke, tissue dies very quickly, and there's not time to actually migrate any of that functionality other places. So, what you know, once you put these different layers in in the OR, and you say, okay, you know, we'll see what happens. Is the hope that some of those, some of that functionality would return or just it would be easier to regain? Or, you know, what are, where does your, where does, uh, you know, the, what does the future hold in this, uh, you know, scenario if you, as we push, continue pushing this scenario further? Yeah. So for something like stroke, again, it, it's a catastrophic event. The function is gone, right? So the, the goal there is to facilitate reacquisition 
of the loss function, whether it's language or, or movement or whatever. Um, and, and so that's a little different than, you know, the glioma model where existing uh, functions um, seamlessly move to a new substrate. Um, that model is what we want to do for something like aging or, or you know, Alzheimer's. Um, and of course, we can't be putting in tumors in people to slowly grow and destroy areas to, you know, have those uh, old tissues get, get eaten away while the information is used by the individual and re-encoded elsewhere uh, because they're using it. Um, so we have to come up with a different way than using tumors. And, and so at this point, this is, you know, uh, sort of um, design on paper. You know, we haven't done any testing on this. But the tools exist for optogenetic silencing with fairly uh, deep penetrating red shifted light. Um, yeah, so optogenetics, again, is just a way of controlling the activity of neurons with light after uh, modifying those, those neurons with channels that either open or, or close in response to light. And, and so um, we could use uh, an optogenetic approach that progressively silences an area of the neocortex from the pinpoint to a broader area over time, mimicking what a tumor does. And if the person is using the functions encoded in that tissue while we're doing this over the course of, of a couple of years, that tissue, uh, that those functions will necessarily get encoded elsewhere. But this is what we know about plasticity, that it will happen even though we don't know how it happens. Um, and, and so, you know, it would be along those lines that, that we would be able to do the, implement the, the ship of thesis approach of, uh, you know, silencing uh, areas of tissue while they're re-encoded elsewhere, including new tissue that we've engrafted. Once this area of tissue is silenced, it's essentially useless to the person and can be surgically removed, creating space for new tissue. Uh, and you would just repeat this. If you put fetal brain tissue inside of someone's head, could you have a different personality emerge? Like how is that tissue going to get along with their current tissue? Could you see someone's personality change? Could you have, um, could you have problems if you're replacing large amounts of tissue? I guess another, you know, theoretical concern is fetal tissue cancer, but I'm just thinking more like, let's say we solve that, that problem and we get to some of the interesting personality stuff, how, you have two brains inside one head, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of things we could discuss uh, along those lines that are uh, really interesting in terms of changes. Um, so, the you know the the idea is not to to maintain who you are. I think most people want that. Although you know, when some people hear about this, they're like all excited, like, "Oh, I, I could become." somebody different, or I can learn a new language instead of make, you know, just knowing the one I know now. Um, you know, so that I guess you could take this in different directions. Uh, but, um, yeah, so 
but but the important thing, right, is is to do this when you say large amounts of tissue is to do it very progressively, though. You know, so you're, you're basically doing a, a small amount each time, right? So if there is a change of personality, it, it would be hard to notice or, or you know, uh, maybe after, you know, a couple of decades, if you compare who you were before to who you are now that you have a, a completely young brain, uh, yeah, maybe you would be different, but isn't that the case already? Like, if I compare myself to who I was like 20 years ago or 30 or years ago, you know, I would say I'm pretty different. <laughs> okay. First rapid fire question. What is one important paper that you think people outside your field should be more familiar with? Because we were talking about how much of the field of life extension researchers is sort of overlooking the importance of the extracellular environment of cells. I highly recommend a review by uh, uh, Fedensev and Moskalev in 2020. It was published in Aging Research Reviews. And it essentially highlights, you know, why ignoring this is going to bite us in the butt. Um, down the road. Um, so that, that, that's the first one. The second one is, is one, you know, closer to what we do in my lab, but it was one of the early seminal papers showing that putting in young precursors in an old brain leads to, uh, really a surprisingly good integration of the neurons that are derived from, from those transplanted cells with the adult brain. Um, it, and, and that's a paper, uh, um, first author is Faulkner, F-A-L-K-N-E-R. There's, there's a bunch of other authors. The senior author is, is Hubner, H-U with the umlaut, B-E-N-E-R, uh, a group in Germany. And, um, this was published in Nature in 2016. Um, yeah, and it, basically the title says it all. Transplanted embryonic neurons integrate into adult neocortical circuits. You know, not necessarily completely normally yet, but you know, it, it was it's very encouraging uh, sort of landmark paper. So those two are, are ones that I would recommend. All right, if you had unlimited funds for one experiment, you get to ask one question. What would you fund? I would do the proof of principle experiment for uh, neocortical tissue replacement, you know, just for uh, one bit of tissue. Um, you know, we can do this in animal models where we can prove that the new tissue encodes a useful uh, behavior to the animal, right? Again, with optogenetic silencing, you can actually turn those neurons on and off and, and really prove that they're involved in this function. I think that experiment will, you know, once we do it, assuming we'll get there, uh, will we'll revolutionize how we think about treating brain damage in general. Next question. What important medical truth do very few of your colleagues agree with you on? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to say that it's... Um, you don't have to understand how a therapy works for it to, to be beneficial to people. 
right? Most of what's used in medicine uh, was not initiated uh, because of an understanding of the mechanisms of how that works. I mean, you know, aspirin's a good example, but you know, it's across the board. And and you know, many of my colleagues in research uh, feel that. And for example, for aging, that you have to understand all the processes that go along in aging, which are really going to take us, you know, thousands of years before we understand all those processes. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but, um, you know, you don't have to understand that what, how, you know, all the, everything that's going on in aging or how it happens uh, to come up with an effective treatment uh, to reverse it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. If people are interested in learning more about you or your work, where would you have them go on the internet? Um, they could just Google my name at Einstein, and um, what will come up will be our lab webpage and um, maybe my Twitter account. But I don't, you know, I'm not a big tweeter, so so the lab webpage would be better. Great. Well, it's always good to talk to someone uh, from Einstein, my <laughs> alma mater. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank Thanks you. It's great talking to you. Great. See you guys. Take care. Yeah.